The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Gog and Magog. Gog is a name of a someone. Magog is a place in the book of Ezekiel. All right? Um, and of course, it had to do with Babylon and some of the uh, surrounding areas there. So it, it's, uh, well, let me say this. I have this here. I want to make sure I get it correct. Uh, where did I put that? Where did I put that? Okay. Uh, and by the way, just in Revelation 20, when it gets to, to when it gets to Gog and Magog, uh, listen here, Gog literally in the Greek means mountain. So if you look up the word Gog, in Revelation 20, it is mountain. And Magog means covering. All right? And when you go to Ezekiel 38, 39, and you start seeing these references to Gog and Magog, you see that because it talks about Gog and Magog uh, covering. You'll see the word covering used there. So uh, I know I told you to go to Revelation 19, but I'm just letting you know that in uh, Revelation 20, which we'll look at in a moment, when you see Gog, Literally means mountain in the Greek. Magog literally means covering. All right. Uh, all you know, like Armageddon. That's another uh, Old Testament reference, and it's Har Megiddo, which is the Valley of Megiddo. That's all it means. Armageddon does not mean end of the world catastrophe, million people getting killed. Literally means Valley of Megiddo, and Megiddo was a famous battle area uh, in Israel's history. Many of the, uh, the kings of Israel had been killed there and that type of thing. So always helps to understand these Jewish scriptural uh, references and motifs and nuances and all these types of things here. Now, even in Revelation 19, or I told you uh, to turn there, which let me pull it up here. Verse 17, like where he says, and I have it up here, he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, uh, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 18, So that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the commanders, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and of those who say... That's a quotation from Ezekiel, uh, uh, again, 38, I believe, 38 or 39, I believe it's 38. So again, these aren't just bizarre, pulled out of left field, where did he come up with it? This is scripture, all right? So again, uh, this is from the book of Ezekiel here. Now, um, let me look at this here. So many good things here. Let's... Um, Let's, I guess let's just jump into chapter 20 here real quick. And then um, Revelation chapter 20, and then uh, we'll start here in verse 1. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. So he says, Then 
I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now the word angel uh, in the Greek is the word messenger. So when you read the book of Revelation in particular, like when he'll say to the angel of the church of such and such, well, it might mean like the senior leader, the apostle or the pastor over that ministry, the messenger, all right? And then sometimes it means an angel. And then in Revelation chapter 10, there's an angel that comes down, which is almost certainly a reference to Jesus, all right? So you just got to, you know, keep that in mind. He says, then I saw an angel, messenger, coming down from heaven, holding the great key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of uh, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him. So that he would, now notice, here it is, and I point this out last week. He threw him into what? The abyss. And he shut it and sealed it. So what? So that what? So he would not deceive the nations. So the capacity in which Satan was bound was so that he could no longer deceive the nations. All right? So notice that. Until the thousand years were completed, and after these things he released for a short time. Now let me give you these handouts here. Um, let's... Ah, shoot. She did not. These are supposed to be together. Okay, so this was supposed to be one. Thank you, Jason. Uh, this is supposed to be together. But, so this one says millennium, different views and definitions. And then there's a, another one. It's supposed to be together. It says how Satan was bound. <coughs> how Satan was bound at the millennium. So that's what I want to say. So uh, we will do that. Thank you, Jason. And probably enough of that one. Well, I don't know. There's probably 15 of this. So maybe these both combined, I guess. Okay. Yeah, the one that okay, so millennium and how sick was it should be one. Shouldn't be the other. Maybe back to back. They're probably in order though. Okay. Yeah. But just so that's one, if, if you know what I mean. So we'll uh, look at a few things here. Last week we covered uh, the different millennial millennium uh, views. Um, but this will make your life a lot easier just to have this with you and in front of you. Uh, couples might need to share at some point. I'm not sure. Let's see how many we have. Yeah, next one. Uh, Cindy, over there. Uh, Cindy, what do you have? You don't have the one that says how Satan was bound? Yeah, she needs that. Again, it's one. It should be one. I'm sorry it's not stapled together. They're separate. But everyone should have one that says millennium, different views and definitions, and then one that says how Satan was bound at the millennium. Thank you, sir. You are a gentleman and a scholar. And single. And single, baby. Put it on the web. And single. 
Ada nama Engel. Udah makan. Alright. Does everyone have have one or have one feel like that? Okay, now, jump to the back one there, how Satan was bound. <clears throat> and then we'll get to the other sheet in a moment. Okay, how Satan was bound at the, what we call millennium, even though the word millennium is not there, it's the thousand years. All right, now notice this, let's read here. Satan worked through the apostate, Jewish leadership to deceive the Jewish people of the first century. You understand that, don't you? And then I have 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 reference there, which is where it says, Satan, the god of that age, King James's world, it's the Greek word age, uh, blinded their eyes from seeing the glorious light of the gospel in Jesus. All right? It says, they were so deceived, so much so that they murdered their own Messiah, and persecuted and killed many of the messengers that he sent to them time and time again. And then I have 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8, where it says if they would have realized and known what they were doing, they wouldn't have murdered the Lord of glory. All right? Keep reading. It says, however, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God defeated Satan and broke his authority over mankind. You, you understand that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that man could believe the truth and be set free from Satan's deception. John chapter 8, you will know, there's knowledge, know the truth. And the truth will make you free. For example, we see that beginning on the day of Pentecost, as well as many other accounts in Scripture, thousands upon thousands of people became believers and were added to the church. So Satan's dominion was broken because at that point, they could believe the truth and be set free from his dominion. Um, thus, Satan was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. Revelation 23, verse 3. And the gospel went forth as the tree of life, which produced leaves that provided healing for the nations. You know that's Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And I'll just get that up there very quickly. So it doesn't say Satan was bound and put in a prison cell so that he couldn't do anything so that he was completely incapacitated. It says he was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. The truth had finally come in its fullness. Book of Galatians says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. All right? The fullness of time, which is very profound to what we teach concerning these things. The fullness of time was 2,000 years ago, according to Paul. Um, uh, Revelation 22, verse 1 here, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 2, notice this. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, there was what? The tree of life. 
course, access to the tree of life was uh, shut off, I guess, in the book of Genesis. But we see the restoration of the tree of life here. All right? Now, the tree of life is the cross of Jesus. Book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Book of Galatians quotes that. And, he, and then he says that uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. So Jesus fulfilled that curse. We are now curseless ground. Hallelujah. All right. So notice this. Verse 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, <coughs> yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for what? The healing of the nations. Well, this, this, is, this has to be earth. There's nations on earth. There's not nations in heaven. Unless, I mean, I guess theoretically there could be. I don't know of any scriptural... But we know there's nations here. <laughs> Does that make sense? So the gospel goes forth, and it has been for 2,000 years now, as the healing of the nations. <laughs> and we know everywhere that the gospel goes forth, the true gospel, in whatever degree there is truth, will, co will come forth freedom and healing for nations. It was the gospel. Think about our nation, America. It was... You've heard of the Puritans. You've heard of Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans and a lot of these guys. They came here to the new land, as it were, because they believed this was the place where they could have total freedom of Christian worship to the true and living God, which would manifest and bring forth in fullness the kingdom of God into the earth. All right? Uh, unrestricted. They believed on your first page there, don't go there per se yet, stay with me, but just in what's called post-millennialism, which is a very optimistic view that the kingdom of God wins and that we progressively, wherever the kingdom goes, society is positively influenced. And you think about anything. Think about having a weekend off of work. That was, yeah, that was brought forth by Christians. Think about so many of the hospitals that we have uh, all across the world, but uh, go back and study it. Much of that was Christians, Christian development. Think about, and I mentioned this previously, but think about uh, the Ivy League schools here in America. Harvard, uh, Yale, Princeton, uh, whatever. These were established originally. Of course, now they're known as uh, you know, very extremely liberal, uh, whatever, um, non-Christian. Uh, but these were established by Christians for the advancement of Christian truth and education for the glory of God. And think about how America has, in such a relatively short time, become the, the leading, if you want to say it that way, leading nation in the world. You know, you know what I'm saying? Whatever, however you want to word it. It was founded by Christians who had an optimistic view, all right, concerning the kingdom of God. 
uh, and all through the early church, there was never this idea that things have to get worse and worse and uh, the devil takes over and all that stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, everything from women having rights and voting rights and freedom and work and access to education, wherever the gospel has happened, uh, think about reading. Just the access to be able to read. Once upon a time, uh, the then Catholic Church, everything was in Latin, which the common people had no, basically, understanding or access to. And then here comes Martin Luther. What's he get a revelation of? Romans chapter 1, quoted from the Old Testament, you are justified by faith. The just will live by faith. And that brought about the Reformation, which brought about getting God's scriptures, God's holy written word, in access in the common tongue of men, which cultivated reading, education, and the ultimate form that is in the things of God in his word. Think about that. A simple revelation that we're justified by faith and not by works sparked, you know, here comes the printing press. Here comes access to the word of God in the common tongue for all forth to the to the degree that there's truth being witnessed to freedom corresponds with it and you know you know what i'm saying now so in verse three there's no longer any curse well that's not a future thing what does galatians chapter three say christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that's a present reality. And don't let demon or deacon talk you out of it. Back to Revelation chapter 20. Or let's go back to Revelation 20. At the same time, look at your, your paper, the How Satan Was Bound paper. I want to show you this. Some things we've just, we've not had like a frame of reference for some of these things, but we're going to get it now. Once again, we're going to drive this home. We're going to kick this dead horse repeatedly. How was Satan specifically bound? So that he could no longer deceive the nations. Yes. Does not say he was inactive. Does not say that he was uh, fully incapacitated. Nothing like that. Of course, all he works through is deception. That's all he has. Right? So that was broken off of him. Now man can believe the truth and be made free. You're in Revelation, but please... Do me a favor and look up here. Stay in Revelation, but look up here. Please. John chapter 12. <clears throat> I will put it up here, verse 31. Notice this. Jesus talking here. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, not some TV preacher we might not like, Jesus says this 2,000 years ago, John 12, verse 31. He says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now look at that. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the judgment of the world, God's going to judge the world. No, he did it 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. Alright? Now what did Jesus say in John chapter 3 and many other places? But John chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I did not come to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. So his judgment upon the world was not him slaughtering mankind. It was him defeating 
the prince of the power of the air and breaking his dominion off of mankind so mankind could be saved. All right? So what was the judgment of the world? That the ruler of this world would be cast out. That word cast out in the Greek has many different connotations, but uh, it, it, it can mean many things, but it, one understanding of it is a, uh, the word violence can be attached to it, which we know in the cross there was violence, but it also gives the idea that Jesus just absolutely just slaughtered the devil. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even a fight. You know, he just kicked his butt up one side, down the other. It's just an absolute uh, thumping, right? Total victory. Now, did you see that, right? Yeah. And can you handle it? <laughs> yes, no, maybe? Yes. And are you capable of agreeing with it? Yes. That Jesus said 2,000 years ago, now, right over there, now the prince of this world is cast out. Well, John said it in Revelation another way, that a great messenger came down with chains and bound the devil so that he could no longer deceive the nations. All right? Here's another scripture for you. Just look on your sheet there. It's right in front of you. You don't have to turn there. Colossians chapter 2. Look at this. Verse 15. <clears throat> it says, in this way, uh, well, look, I guess verse 14. I'll read you verse 14. It says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. And in this way, or let me read this again. It says, when he disarmed... Now, if you have a King James in Colossians 2.15, if you had a King James, it would say he spoiled. But in the Greek, it's disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. You see that? Colossians 2. It's, I don't, it's, I, it's in the NLT up here. I didn't mean for that to happen. But on your sheet that you have right in front of you, Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed rulers and authorities, or King James, principalities and powers. So he disarmed the devil. So in John 12, he cast him out. In Colossians 2, he disarmed him. Made a public display of him and triumphed over them through him. That is, through the cross. Alright? Then also in Hebrews chapter 2, notice this. Hebrews chapter 2. Right on your sheet there. There, and I don't have this up here, I'm sorry. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Did you wear your shouting clothes, man? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So through death, he... That's a brother hand for you there. Through death, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. Woo! Yeah. Well, Revelation 20 just says it another way. He bound him so he could no longer deceive the nations. Right here it says a much stronger uh, way of saying it. He rendered powerless the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. All right? Uh, I was just wondering, you had said earlier that he was only bound in, in the way of not being able to deceive. Mm -hmm. So what power did he have left? I mean, you were pointing out that yeah. that's how he was bound. Yes. But Deception. Really, that is only 
Deception. So he was totally bound. Right. Deception is his only power. Right. And he was bound so he could no longer deceive. So he was powerless at that point. To those who believe the truth. Yeah. Yes. Because the gospel is the truth that makes free. So I have to believe the truth. And thus, believing the truth is one and the same as not believing his lie, his deception. It's one and the same. Yeah, you got to believe it. Yeah. Yeah, there's. But he was also calling so that people that hadn't been able to believe who were deceived could now see the truth. Mm -hmm. Right? I. Yeah, I feel like that's I, the same thing. one of the same. Am I not being clear enough with that? No. Okay. I mean, again, the devil only has deception, right? When he, when he came to Adam and Eve, you know, he didn't, like, hold a gun to their head or put them in a spiritual headlock. Or when he came to Jesus in, in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, he didn't, like, try to push him off a cliff. He had to try to deceive him into jumping off, right? So deception's what he has. Now, deception, there's consequences. You can not believe in gravity and jump off the top of this building, and that deception will have negative consequences. Right. We could not believe that Jesus is a healer and never access our healing. Mm -hmm. You could not believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and there's some pretty negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So that's a big deal. If I'm not communicating that adequately, I'm sorry. It's a huge deal. Satan can't push you off a cliff, but he could try to deceive you as he tried to deceive Jesus. Hey, jump off, for it's written. But he deceived what was written. He, he twisted what was written. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So he'll take the word of God and he'll say, oh, yeah, there's healing in there. Oh, but that passed away. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big deception. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, you know, it's it doesn't matter. There's all paths lead to God. I mean, Jesus was great, but Muhammad's great. Buddha's great. Then make up your own you worship this thing right here. I mean, go, it's it's all fine. It's all going to go to the same place. It's all good. You know, you know, it's like, well, deception has huge consequences. Mm -hmm. All right, good. Good? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, good deal. For a lack of knowledge, my people are destroyed. Mm -hmm. My people are destroyed mm -hmm. for a lack of knowledge. <clears throat> so this is a very big deal. All right. Now, uh, there's many other scriptures we could use that show the authority uh, that, uh, let me see if I can pull this one thing up here. <clears throat> I can find it. Uh, just the fact that Jesus, Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, he said, if I cast out demons, he said, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you and in your midst. So, in other words, Jesus, because of truth, had dominion over Satan and could cast out demons. And then, through the new birth, in particular, after the day of Pentecost, we see, like, we see uh, Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 6. It says he went down to Samaria, preached Christ unto them, and it says many demons departed from them, and uh, many people were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So just by preaching Christ, demons were broken off of people. That's awesome. In Acts chapter 16, there was a demon-possessed woman who's following Paul around and 
Uh, we can get into why she was doing this. We're not going to waste time on that right now or get into spend time on that. But, you know, these men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants. See, she had been doing that with these other people with, you know, her divination. But now, so she's trying to do the same thing. And then it says, a few, after a few days of that, Paul was grieved. And it says, Paul turned around to, to her, but spoke to the spirit inside of her and said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, come out of her. And he had dominion to do that. Because Satan had been disarmed. All right? So, therefore, we have dominion. All right? Um, let me show you this scripture here. And I have it up here. It's not on your sheet. Uh, this is Paul. Of course, you go to Acts chapter 9, and you see the account where Jesus appears to Paul uh, in the line, lines of all that. But it comes to Paul. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Here in Acts chapter 26, he's rehearsing this account to someone. So he gives a little different insight into what Jesus said to him that you don't see Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke doesn't share this particular part in Acts chapter 9, but he shares it here in Acts 26. Verse 13, Paul rehearsing this account says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Acts 26, 13. Brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and uh, those who were journeying with me. Verse 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Now notice this. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, so that, verse 18, so that their eyes may, uh, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God. So by turning from darkness to light, you're brought out of Satan's dominion and influence and into the Lord's dominion and influence. So that they may receive forgiveness and an inheritance to those who have been sanctified by faith in me. I love that. We're sanctified by faith, by the way, not by works. Then he says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, back to Revelation 20. I just want to show you that uh, it's very clear here. We can't, you know, there's so many speculative ideas here, but he tells us how he was bound. It's not, there's nothing to be confused about once we see it, you know. Now, verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, sealed it over him, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he's released for a short time. Now, let's look at your uh, paper there, the one that says Millennium on the front, and we'll just review this, but now you have it in front of you so you can follow along a little bit better. So, on the very top of your paper there, Millennium, different using definitions. 
The first one we'll look at is called premillennial. Uh, premillennial is probably, it's the most common view in America, but it's probably the most uncommon view throughout the rest of the world, right, in Christ Christendom. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, all right, now, premillennialism teaches that the second coming, not to be confused with the rapture, those who believe in some kind of a rapture, do not equate that with the separate second coming. You understand that? The rapture is considered an invisible coming. Uh, whether someone is whether someone's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, it's considered second. If you believe in a rapture, it's considered opposite of a set. The, the rapture is considered an invisible coming, an invisible coming and catching away. The second coming is considered a visible, physical coming of Jesus. You understand that? Yeah. Well, I hope you do. Premillennialism teaches that the second coming of Jesus will occur before a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus from Jerusalem upon the earth. All right? This is the minority view. Um, it wasn't really a, a view in church history virtually at all until about 200 years ago. Uh, the next two are the, are the common views. Postmillennialism. Postmillennialists believe that the thousand-year reign of the millennium is an era, not necessarily a thousand years, literal thousand years, during which Christ will reign over the earth, not from a literal earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives and culture, you know. After this gradual Christianization of the world, Christ will return and immediately usher in the church into the eternal state after judging the wicked. This is called post-millennialism because, by its view, Christ will return after or post the thousand years, the millennium. In contrast to premillennialism, the postmillennialists emphasize the present aspects of God's kingdom, which will reach fruition in the future. They believe that the millennium will come through Christian preaching and teaching. Such activity will result in a more godly, peaceful, and prosperous world from the present. And it will come about as more and more people are converted to Christ. Evil, according to this view, will not be totally eliminated during this uh, so-called millennium, but it will be reduced to a minimum as the moral and spiritual influence of Christians uh, is increased. Premillennialism says Jesus will visibly, physically, bodily come back to the earth and usher in a golden age on the earth. And even in that view, there will be some pockets and views of evil and unbelievers in the world, which it's just bizarre to me how you could think that. Postmillennialism, that's a literal thousand years. Postmillennialism says the so-called millennium, it's not a literal thousand years. It's just an unspecified time. It's an era through which 
the Lord reigns, the thousand-year reign, the Lord reigns through the church on the earth. And at the end of that millennium, Jesus comes back and instantly ushers in whatever the eternal state for all of mankind is. Does that make are you mm -hmm. all right? I'm trying to think of some some modern, there's many uh, people we could maybe more later. All millennialism. All means no, as in all theist, atheist. All millennial is the view in Christian eschatology which states that Christ is presently reigning through the church and that the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 is metaphorical reference to the present church age which will culminate in Christ's return. Um, it stands in contrast to premillennialism which states that Christ will appear return prior to a literal thousand year reign and postmillennialism which states that Christ will reign uh, Christ's return pardon me will follow a thousand year golden age ushered in by the church all millennialism teaches that the thousand year reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation 20 is synonymous with and symbolic of the church age it contends that the period described in Revelation 20 was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection and will continue until the second coming. All millennialism holds that while Christ's return, uh, reign during the millennium is spiritual in nature, at the end of the church age, Christ will return in final judgment and establish a permanent physical reign. Also taught by all millennialism is that the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 has already occurred. Uh, Post-millennial believes this too, by the way. And that he might not deceive the nations any longer by preventing the spread of the gospel. Lastly, and I want to show you this. All millennialism and post-millennialism are far and away the, the, the common views in the church today and in church history. By the way. Now, lastly here is what's called transmillennialism. Trans as in transition, all right? Transmillennialism is a transitional period, this is the belief, in which God's creation is transformed from the old creation to the new creation. If any man be in, this is me now, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All right. So, from, so it's not... Physical, in other words, it's, you know, per se. From the old creation to the new creation, and humanity's relationship with God transitions from the mosaic system of death into the new creation of the resurrected Christ. The mo now notice that the mosaic uh, system of death, what does 2 Corinthians chapter 3 say? It says the law written and engraved in stones and commandments, which represented the, the whole of the law. What did Paul call it? The ministry of death, uh, the law. The ministry of death and condemnation. Paul said the Ten Commandments are the ministry of death and condemnation. Second Corinthians 3. So God was, because the law can't give life. Right? It can just reveal your sin. Mm -hmm. Paul said when the commandment came, Sin revived and slew me. And there's many scriptures we could give in reference to that. Now, 
into the new creation of the resurrected Christ. Simply put, the millennium, so-called, is the transitional period from the old covenant to the new covenant. The thousand years, or the millennium, is from approximately the, the cross of Jesus until the destruction of the temple, which represented the old covenant slash mosaic slash law system, which was destroyed in 70 AD. So, in other words, Satan was bound through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We understand that. Regardless of your millennial view, you understand that. And then the transition period from old creation to new creation is from essentially the cross until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. <clears throat> um, you, you got your hand out in front of you. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, look on your paper there, Hebrews 8.13. The author of Hebrews in approximately 65 to 67 AD said this, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first one, what? Uh, obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Mm -hmm. So in approximately 65 to 67, probably 67 AD, the author of Hebrews says, the Old Covenant is obsolete, so God's not honoring that system anymore, but it's still visibly on the scene via the temple, but it's ready to disappear. And of course, it's been disappeared for 2,000 years now. All right, There's no Jewish temple to this day. Now, look at Hebrews on your paper, Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit signifies this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. This is, after, this is after the cross. But the author of Hebrews says, the way into the true holy place had not yet been disclosed. Why? Because while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. So the outer tabernacle, the temple, had to be destroyed before the way into the temple, from what we see in Exodus and Hebrews, there's a temple in heaven. And the way into that true holy place was not made available to the people of God until the, that the earthly tabernacle was destroyed. All right? Look at Hebrews 10.37. Look at Hebrews, this is right here, Hebrews 10.37. For yet, in a, this is a quote, this is, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So the author of Hebrews in probably 67 AD said in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. He doesn't say in 2,000 plus years future. He doesn't say, well, it'll happen shortly. Well, shortly doesn't mean, you know, Soon, it just means when it happens, it'll be fast. No, you can, there's no twisting this. 67 AD, the author of Hebrews says, Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And of course, he came in judgment on the old covenant system, which resulted in what? Hebrews chapter 9, the temple being destroyed, the outer tabernacle being taken off the scene. Hebrews 8, 13, while the Old Testament system was obsolete, in growing old, it had to disappear from the scene 
which it did at the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. Look at Romans 16, verse 20 on your paper there. This is after the cross, and yet, and, and Ryan and I talked about this this week, and uh, I wanted to add this. Uh, 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, wait a minute. He had already disarmed Satan. We, we read those verses. Through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. He disarmed principalities and powers. He judged the prince of the world. So Satan was already powerless over the believer, but Satan still had one thing he could try to use against the true people of God, the law system. In, in other words, having apostate Israel persecute the true Israel, Romans 2 and Revelation uh, 2 or 3, the true people of God. All right? Why? Because 2 Corinthians 3 says the law is the system, the ministry of death and condemnation. So Satan was working through that death system to persecute the true people of God. You know that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, says the strength of sin is the law. Whew. So Satan was working through that system to come against the true people of God. But Paul was saying, yes, he has been defeated spiritually. He has no power over you. You're a new creation in Christ. You've got authority in Jesus' name. The Spirit of God, greater he's within you. He's the world, so on. But he says, but he's still, you can't control everything. You know what I'm saying? But we, even in death, we have victory. Don't misunderstand me. But even in persecution coming against you, even that, applicable to those guys in particular in the first century, that system is coming to an end because you. The Lord is coming in judgment upon that system. And their apostate system and their temple will all be totally destroyed. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see that? Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Notice this. Very interesting. After the cross, he says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink Talking about Jewish things here. Or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Now notice this. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. And that's the Greek. That's future tense. This is after the cross. This is after the cross. So Jesus invalidated the Jewish system through the cross. But it was still physically on the scene and being implemented by the apostate Jewish system. But after the destruction of the temple, the old creation would be fully gone. And nothing would be left but the new creation. So in other words, these things were a shadow of what is to come. The author of Colossians says here, after the cross, it's very important to understand that, all right? But the substance belongs to Christ. And then a verse that I kind of touch on a lot. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And it's on your paper there. He says, the end of all things is near. Mm -hmm. Do I have that in here? I'm sorry. Very interesting there. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. 
So 1 Peter was probably written in 65 AD. Now look at that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty clear, profound statement. What was, what was the end of all these things? The Jewish system. Because to the Jew, the temple system and the mosaic system was all things. So the end of all things was near. I mean, just look down at verse 17, and you can write that on your paper there if you need to. For it is time, uh, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. What was the house of God? The temple. So that's what he's saying there. The end of all things, the judgment upon the temple system. All right. Well, um, hallelujah. Good deal. Uh, did I not give you guys the sheet that had all the references to the thousand minutes? Do I have a question? Yes. Uh, any, any insight on why they would use the word millennium and not age or something like that? Oh, I did. Okay. Just, yes. I did give you all. I'll get to that in just one moment. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. I didn't realize it was. Uh, scriptural examples on your next page there of where a thousand has a symbolic meaning. Mm -hmm. so, 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 thousand, I, I submit, in <clears throat> Revelation 20, is not a literal thousand. And the early church never believed that, it, and I got a few quotations here, that it was a literal, earthly thousand years. And I got a quotation here, I got several, but I'll give you some. But Deuteronomy 32, look, I don't have time to go through all of these. One common one is Psalm 50, verse 10, about the middle of the sheet there. It says, every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, a thousand may fall at your right side, ten thousand at your right hand. Very clearly a symbolic meaning there. Um, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Uh, Judges 15, it says, uh, uh, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out and killed a thousand men. People... Pretty much unanimously understand that's a symbolic statement. Man, who was at the football game this weekend? I didn't get to make it. Man, everybody was there. Well, everybody was not there. But you understand what's being communicated. And there's many verses here. So one can put a thousand to flight. So, no, I do not believe, as the extreme vast majority of church history did not believe and does not believe to this day, that the thousand is a literal actual 1,000, like the, it's, it's symbolic, as in the many scriptures I gave you there, even though there's many more. Now, um, Ryan, what was your question again? Yeah, kind of what you're talking about here, but just why would they use the word millennium and not age or generation or uh -huh. something like that? Well, because the whole book of Revelation is uh, communicated in symbolic language, which, let me, let me show you this. Uh, and of course, I am obviously wrapping up here. Um, Revelation, just look up here if you can. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Work. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must soon come to pass or shortly come to pass. To, uh, then he says this, that he sent and what? Signified. Now, what's the first word of signified? Sign. Sign. He signified. He showed John these things in signs and symbols. 
So the entire, think about it, Satan is, is called a great red dragon, but he's not. Jesus is called the lamb who was slain, but he's not a furry barnyard creature. <laughs> so the whole, go through the whole book, and I'm not trying to, but so yeah, it's the whole book is symbolic. So yeah, so he uses, I, I think the thousand year is speaking of quality and not literal quantity. Yeah. So, so it's, you hold to trans... I hold to the trans millennium. Trans millennium. That it's, that the, what's called the thousand years is, and, and, and pay attention and you'll, you'll see the, because we don't have time to finish the chapter. I hold the trans millennium, which is the view that the, what's called the thousand years is the transition period because that's where Satan was bound, was at the cross, mm -hmm. all right? And then he was, it says he was released for a short while. Well, I believe the short while that he was released was the great tribulation. Mm -hmm. And of course, the great tribulation was the three and a half years mm -hmm. where Satan, through Rome, came in and killed some 1.1 million Jews, slaughtered mm -hmm. them. So that's the time he was finally released to wreak final havoc mm -hmm. in and through and upon that system. So this definition does not refer to a second coming. The trans... Uh, well, I believe the Lord's coming and destruction on Jerusalem in 70 AD is... Uh, if you want to call it the second coming, that's uh, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, the day of the Lord, the return mm -hmm. of the Lord. Yes, I hold his coming and destruction on Jerusalem as that. And then end of world. End of world? There's no scripture for that. Yeah. There's many scriptures on the, on the end of the age. Mm. Now let me show you this since he mentioned it. And I just flipped your wig and I don't have time to, to, to dissect that can of worms. But look at me and look at this behind me. What does this say? And to him be glory in the church. Say it like you mean. It says the anointed one in his anointing, Jesus, throughout all ages. World without end. Amen. World without end. Now, world without end, a famous Greek scholar, F.F. Uh, uh, F. Bruce, I believe it was, <clears throat> said world without end, and you look it up in the Greek, it's, do that on your own. He said this is the strongest possible way in the Greek of stating absolute unendingness. That if you want to... There's no stronger way to state that something cannot end in the Koine Greek at that time. World with, in the Greek, world without end. That this is the strongest possible state of unendingness. Now we'll get into more on that later. I know questions are flying up in your head and you might be freaking out. Just stay with us here. You know, we'll get into more of these things later. Um, any other... Ryan, good question. Max, good question. Any other... Things that are pertinent to what we're discussing here that I can maybe quickly address if you have something right now that you just have to have answered. <laughs> Not that I'll necessarily have an answer. Okay, now I got one more handout for you here. Uh, I'm like, you know, the news, the news uh, network that says we report, you decide. No, I'm never dogmatic about the things I present. Um, I hope all of us as Christian brothers and sisters can have enough love and respect that if we disagree, we can do so agreeably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that should be. 
There's not enough. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, we ran out of ink. On that one? Oh, okay. So on this one, definitely couples share one, and I'll try to get more to you next week if we don't have enough at all. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so, so we report, you decide, you know, got an extra there. So hopefully this doesn't freak anyone out enough to uh, <laughs> leave and... Hey, would you correct this statement? No, I don't know. I, or, or affirm it. I have a tendency to believe now that we are living in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 That's undeniable. Okay. It's from scripture. Yeah. yeah, we don't, and that's the next chapter in relation. I mean, but a lot of people don't believe that. Holy no, soul. but I, I can I can show you, uh, in, and I'm going to hopefully next week. I'm going to show you undeniably from Scripture that we're in the new creation, or the new Jerusalem, or the new heaven and earth. There's just really no Holy way around folks. it. Now you're saying, Jordan, you can't do that, and you've already freaked me out enough here today. <laughs> don't freak out. Come back. We'll we'll look at these things. Uh, you say, Jordan, you're flipping my way. I never, this is not what my, it's not what my favorite preacher said either. But I still love them enough to respect them that I don't have to burn them at the stake just because we don't agree on everything. All right? <laughs> Brother Hagen's one of my all-time favorite preachers. Uh, yeah, you know, me and Brother Hagen don't have the same eschatology. Mm -hmm. All right? Uh, Joseph Prince is one of my favorite preachers. And, you know, Joseph Prince believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. Andrew Womack does not believe in a rapture at all. Futurist. But but the rapture view, yeah. Joseph believes in a rapture, pre-trib. Andrew doesn't believe in a rapture at all. Well, that's I think they're both great. I don't have to not listen to them or burn them at the stake or you know. And then one of people's, especially those of us with the Word of Faith charismatic thing background, you know, we say sometimes, well, Jordan, I just don't want to be deceived. Well, what makes you think you're not already deceived? And if you're afraid of being deceived, you're already deceived. If you're not mature enough to, to, to consider other options on the table objectively, regardless of what it costs your pride, you need to mature in that a little bit. Because we all should be mature enough to regularly mm -hmm. put our own beliefs on the altar and see what comes out on the other side. Amen. You know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I would also just, you know, one uh, of you know, again, when I worked for Norville, I heard, of course, I am Word of Faith kind of, you know, kind of believer, but I used to hear Word of Faith people all the time say, well, there are no new doctrines. I don't just believe every new doctrine that comes down. Well, just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's a new doctrine. Right. right. With new doctrine as in the negative connotation that it's not in the Scripture. Well, I mean, man. Brother Hagen was a, a Southern Baptist. He didn't know that healing. He didn't even know that anyone believed in healing when he stumbled into believing in healing. So that was a new doctrine. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, I believe in born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. You may say, Jordan, I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that. That's fine, man. You don't have to speak in tongues to be in fellowship with us. Right. You know, um, at all. Uh, you know, and I'm just, we don't have to agree on everything. You know, so I hope I'm, I hope I present things respectfully enough and and that we all, myself included, uh, are mature enough and loving enough to consider the as the, consider these things as to whether or not they be. You know, let's let's be like that. Let's be like those noble Bereans as we reference so often. And I'll leave you with this.
I got many quotations I would like to give you. Maybe I will next week. Here's one quotation from me. This is from John Calvin. I am not a Calvinist, uh, and I disagree with many of Calvin's conclusions, but there's no denying the fact that he was brilliant. Now, John Calvin, the famous pro progenitor of Calvinism or the Reformation or Reformed theology, said this that a literal thousand year millennium, so called, which millennium's not in the scripture, it's always called thousand year. And Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, are the only places in scripture that use that millennium. Not that it uses that word, but that reference this millennium. So all things concerning millennialism only come from six verses. It's wild. John Calvin said a literal millennium is fiction too childish to either need or to even be worth a refutation. <coughs> um, Justin Martyr, have any of you ever heard of Justin Martyr? No. Very renowned church father said this, the belief in a literal earthly thousand year reign found no favor with the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers are the church fathers directly after the apostles. Found no favor with the apostolic fathers. Um, the support of such a view is extremely meager uh, and only one from among, and he lists a certain group of people you've never heard of, uh, could even uh, be claimed. Um, okay, here's one. Eusebius, who I've mentioned recently several times, lived in the 4th century. Uh, the, uh, he's known as the father of church history. You can get his book on church history. He was the first guy to write the history of the church. Incredible writing. He said this. He said, Serenthus, Serenthus was a, a well-known heretic in the early church. He said, through revelations of his own, he would have us to believe as though he were a great apostle. He, br he brings before us marvelous things, which he pretends were shown to him by angels, alleging, uh, pardon me, alleging that after the resurrection, the kingdom of Christ would be on earth, a literal thousand-year Jerusalem reign, in other words. Uh, in Jerusalem, and is to be subject to desires and pleasures, but he, being an enemy of the scriptures of God, wishing to deceive men, he says that there is to be a space of a thousand literal years. Uh, and one of the doctrines that he taught was that Christ would have an earthly kingdom. That's premillennialism. A literal earthly from Jerusalem, thousand year reign. Eusebius in the fourth century said that Serenthus, a well-known early church heretic, preached this doctrine. I got many other quotes for you. Go home. Hallelujah. <laughs> the Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.